If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One of the GDR's chief ideologues said, why would you change your wallpaper just because your neighbour did? Alluding to the fact that Poland and Hungary had agreed to have free elections and ultimately democracy. That was Hester Vesey talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall. With thousands and thousands of people cheering in the streets outside and singing and boozing and lighting bonfires, he formally uh, received the leaders of the political nation and declared that he was back. And that was Ronald Hutton on the public reaction to the return of Charles II. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of November 2014. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 25 years ago this month, the Berlin Wall came down, ending 28 years of enforced separation between East and West Berliners, and beginning a process that would lead to the reunification of Germany the following year. But what was it like to live through these momentous times? One historian who's been trying to answer that question is Hester Vasey of the University of Cambridge. Her new book, Born in the GDR, relates the experiences of eight East Germans as they adapted to the changes taking place around them. I had a chance to speak to Hester about her research a little while back, and I began by asking her how she had selected these eight people to study. Well, I just wrote to all the big institutions in Germany that I could think of where they might be able to help put me in touch with um, eyewitnesses uh, because Germany's obviously got a very interesting 20th century. Uh, They actually have eyewitness banks, portals where people volunteer their services to either go and talk in schools or to groups and associations. And so initially I went to this uh, eyewitness bank in Berlin Um, And and you can look at it online. And uh, I chose some people. I wanted people who'd been born after the war had been put up in August 1961. And so I read through all the profiles and wrote to all the people and interviewed about 30, 35 people. And then the aim was to choose eight contrasting stories to illuminate how one event was experienced universally, but how that experience was felt differently in each life. So roughly when about does the story in your book begin? Well, I suppose it's when people who were born after 1961 first became sort of conscious, I suppose, around eight or nine, where they have sort of memories of life in the GDR. I wanted to talk to people about what it was like to swap communism for capitalism. You know, what was it like to live through that process? And obviously, uh, that was massively informed by what life had been like before, if it had been awful, you know, if you'd been one of the, I think, just over 200,000 people who'd been held political prisoner in the GDR obviously um, it would have been much more of a relief to go to a sort of capitalist democratic setup. But for people who'd liked life in the GDR or for whom it felt perfectly normal, for which that accounted for many people, obviously there were greater downsides to the change potentially as well. Could you give us an indication of, of what was life broadly like living in East Germany at this time and how different was it from West Germany before the wall came down? Well, I think it's really difficult to encapsulate that, you know, what the experiences of East East Germans can't be boiled down into one experience. And that was, the, in a way, the whole point of the book is to show how life in East Germany could be so varied. Um, so one person in the book, for example, was in prison for trying to escape and spent three months in Hohenschönhausen, the Stasi prison in East Berlin. And for him, his life has been, um, in, in a way, totally ruined by the experience because of the psychological trauma caused. He says whenever he goes into a bank or has to deal with someone in a formal scenario, it just reminds him of being in the interrogation room in the prison where the Stasi officers were getting him to try and divulge information about friends and relatives that might be useful to them. But obviously, on the other hand, for people who have more fond memories of life in the GDR, I guess most of the people um, I interviewed weren't old enough to have work in the GDR, but they remember how their parents often lost their jobs as a result of privatisation that happened after reunification. Because in East Germany, 
97% of people worked for state enterprises, and that was reduced dramatically afterwards. And Helmut Kohl had promised um, East Germans that if they voted for reunification, that they'd get Western living standards within five years. But actually, what they got in three years was unemployment up by 15%. And interestingly, each year, the uh, German government puts together a report on the state of unification. And last year in November, when the report came out, it said that East German unemployment remains almost double the unemployment rate in West Germany. So there, there are quite long lingering sort of consequences of this reunification, or in fact, the division. Prior to the, the wall coming down and reunification, did the people you speak to, did they have any idea that this was on the cards? It's difficult to say. I, I'd say that people didn't know that the wall was going to come down, but they definitely knew that something was afoot. You know, you had Gorbachev, the reform had come to power in Russia, and then in Hungary and Poland, dissidents had risen up and forced the communist leaders in those countries to the negotiation table. And this put great pressure on East Germany and Eric Honecker, who was seen as an unrepentant dinosaur who was unwilling to change. Um, I think it was um, Kurt Arger, who was one of the GDR's sort of chief ideologues, said, why would you change your wallpaper just because your neighbour did? Alluding to the fact that Poland and Hungary had um, agreed to have free elections and uh, ultimately democracy. So I guess in East Germany, people were buoyed and given hope by the fact that Gorbachev was open to change and that there'd been change in Poland and Hungary. And so people knew that something was afoot. And certainly in the September and the October, there were demonstrations in places like Leipzig and Berlin. And um, so there was definitely a sense that something was on the cards. But I think for the majority of people, they were hoping for reform within the GDR rather than um, expecting reunification and the, the end of the wall. They were hoping for kind of better conditions. I think they called it socialism with a human face. So just, I guess, a better practice of socialism than they'd been experiencing. Well, that's, that's really interesting because you, you might tend to think sort of here in the West that everybody in East Germany would have loved to, to live in West Germany. But you're saying actually they didn't really want the complete end of the GDR. They just wanted internal reform. Is that, is that right? Well, I think again, it's hard to it's hard to generalise. I mean, five thousand people had successfully managed to escape across the wall in in the twenty eight years that it was up, and, and nearly one hundred and forty people, you know, died in the attempt. And the fact that the East German government put up a wall in nineteen sixty one as a response to the fact that nearly a town's worth of people were moving from communist East Germany to capitalist West Germany suggests that people had been voting with their feet and that the wall was there to try and uh, stop their pride from being undermined. And, you know, there would have been no one left in the GDR potentially. I don't think that's really true. But the fact that the wall was there was definitely significant. But I think it's maybe a bit of a myth that everyone in East Germany was desperate to get out and that they definitely thought that the Western system was better. That definitely wasn't true. You know, they've been subject to 40 years of anti-Western propaganda that um, the West uh, stood for homelessness and unemployment. People in East Germany often in the interviews seem to say that they felt that 
that the system in East Germany was more just. Rent and um, basic foodstuffs were subsidized. But of course, people were very excited when the war fell. You know, uh, it's not for nothing that we have these strong associations with that night, people dancing on top of the wall and hugging each other and drinking champagne. And it was a night full of excitement. And people poured over into West Berlin because they were so curious. Most of them had not been across before. But they were also, East Germans, uncertain about what the future would hold. Initially, when the wall fell, people thought it might well just be the border might be resealed again. And all of this anti-Western propaganda about homelessness and unemployment made people quite nervous about what the future would hold. So what were the reactions of the eight people that you spoke to? Did any of them participate in the wall coming down? How did they feel the moment that it happened? Well, one lady described how she'd been having a drink uh, with a friend and came home and her husband rushed in and said, you know, come on, come on, I'm driving to the Kurfürstendamm. There's a big party there. And the Kurfürstendamm is the big the equivalent of Oxford Street in West Berlin. And she was saying, you know, hey, how can you do that? You know, no one can drive to West Berlin. And so he was just obviously very overexcited and didn't explain properly. But she was eventually persuaded to get in the car with him and they stood in a traffic jam for several hours with all the other Trabant cars that were waiting to cross the border. And then they went to find her cousin in West Berlin, even though it was midnight by that stage. And then they went and took pictures of the wall from the western side and chipped away bits. They were called wall woodpeckers, the people who took souvenirs from the wall back home. And then they had breakfast and she said then she was studying for a PhD and, um, and so she had to get back for a meeting with her supervisor so she had to drive back in the early morning after breakfast others well one lady said she was away and camping with her husband and he thought he caught something of uh, Gunter Schabowski's press conference where he was announcing the easing of travel restrictions he said to his wife oh did you hear that and she sort of dismissed it as nonsense and they went to bed and the next morning woke up you know in this forested area completely isolated to hear that uh, the wall had fallen they immediately packed up their belongings and uh, drove to Berlin and actually the man who was imprisoned by the, the Stasi for trying to escape he had since actually there was an arrangement between east and west Germany that political prisoners from the East were sometimes bought by the West, funded by humanitarian organisations. And after he'd been released from the Stasi prison, he'd been allowed to go to live in West Germany. And he was then settled in West Berlin by the time the wall came down. And he said instead of being delighted that the wall had fallen, he actually felt afraid that the interrogators who had questioned him for hours on end and had used such psychological cruelty against him would now be walking the same streets as him. He felt like the wall had protected him. And obviously that's quite an unusual scenario. But for a lot of people that I talked to, a lot of the East Germans, they really felt a sense of apprehension. What had happened in Hungary in 56 and in Czechoslovakia in 68, there was a worry that there might be a backlash against the opening of the war and that there might be violence on the streets. But obviously that isn't how um, things panned out. And and so obviously not that long after the wall came down, uh, Germany reunified. Did the, did the people you speak to, were they, were they all keen for this to happen? Well, it's difficult to say because... In retrospect, it seems to be quite a common view amongst East Germans that it was a shame that it happened so quickly because 
as a result of um, following Helmut Kohl's plan, uh, the reunification was very rapid. And so it was more of a takeover by West Germany than a genuine merger of the two sides. And in retrospect, um, the East Germans I spoke to often said they wished it had been more of a mixture of the two systems. And part of their dissatisfaction, I suppose, at um, how things have panned out is the fact that um, West Germans have often seemed very dismissive of life in the East and that almost nothing from their old lives was worth saving. So they feel like their, their former lives are sort of denigrated and made to seem worthless. But at the time, I think, obviously, no one really knew uh, how reunification would transpire. Um, Helmut Kohl, as I mentioned before, thought that Western living standards would be possible for East Germans in five years. But in the end, it was reunification was not all that it was promised to be. You know, many East Germans had managed to watch Western TV and through adverts, they'd gained a sort of falsely rosy sense of what life was like in the West. And so inevitably, life was not like that sort of edited version. Um, and so it was a bit of a disappointment, um, particularly for those who were sort of tainted with the burden of unemployment, having previously experienced near full employment in the GDR. So I guess unemployment is probably one aspect, but what were like the most immediate changes the East Germans experienced when they became part of unified Germany? Well, when East Germans first crossed over into uh, West Germany, I think one of the most commonly commented features is their experience of going to a Western supermarket for the first time and the sheer scale of choice that there was that there hadn't been before uh, in terms of food. Um, I think East Germans, the cliche is that uh, uh, East Germans were obsessed with buying bananas because uh, in the GDR, a family had only tended to be issued with a bunch of bananas at Christmas. So they were a real treat, but otherwise they were pretty scarce. Um, so uh, in the West German media, East Germans were the butts of jokes about how, how can you tell that East Germans have been to the supermarket because the banana shelves are completely empty. East Germans talked about their excitement at trying McDonald's for the first time or opening their first can of Coca-Cola um, or buying Western music. So those were kind of, on a material level, those were some of the changes that people commented on. In terms of their lifestyles and their kind of family situations, how, how did they change? Well, as I say, unemployment affected a lot of families. There was also a sense of disorientation it felt across East German society as their society was effectively sort of taken over. They didn't know how things worked, for example. They knew that they dressed differently. They didn't know how to pronounce certain items on the menu in McDonald's, or they didn't know how coin-operated supermarket trolleys worked. And so they knew that they they appeared different. And given that the West seemed to imply that nothing from the GDR was worth saving. Many tried it to hide their origins and blend in attempting to wear a more Western style of clothing or even getting friends in the West to register their cars so that they could have a Western number plate. Um, so I think the initial period of transition was very much marked by, I guess, uncertainty and unfamiliarity and disorientation. When do you think, or I mean, maybe this hasn't even happened, but when do you think East Germans finally began to feel just like Germans and no different from their West German counterparts? That's that's interesting. Many have said that in the past 10 years or so, they've um, 
they've gained more Western friends, genuine close friends, which I think uh, initially the people I spoke to didn't necessarily have many Westerners within their acquaintance. And that took some time to change, though they do still seem to say um, on the whole that they found more common ground with the East Germans when they met them. And they also said that they were glad to have had the experience of both communism and capitalism, especially in the wake of the financial crisis. They felt like they had maybe a more informed perspective because they'd sampled both. Um, so I think being East German remains very much part of the um, the heritage of the people that I've spoke to, but I don't think it sort of defines their existence for most of them, although obviously for, for those who were persecuted and have um, continued sort of psychological trauma as a result, that's a bit of a different case. How much of an improvement now do these former East Germans feel their new lives are? Or, I mean, do any of them wish they were back in East Germany, for example? No. Um, overwhelmingly, all of the people I spoke to said that they were glad that they lived in reunited Germany as opposed to in the GDR. Some said they felt like the West is very critical of communism and um, how it was practiced in the GDR, but they're less reflective about their own society and how that works. For example, you know, they talk about, well, when people think of East Germany, they often think about the Stasi and the 91,000 full-time employees that it had to spy on people and gather information. But people I talked to then cited things like um, if you want to get benefits or um, medical treatment, you have to hand over a lot of information to the state. The state um, even even now contains um, holds a lot of information about individuals and with things like security cameras um, being um, ever more ubiquitous. You know, surveillance is not something that's completely died out. Um, also, although above all, the East Germans talked about being you know, delighted to have freedom of travel, which they've used, and freedom to choose what jobs they have, which was a lot more restricted in the GDR, the freedom of expression without fear of imprisonment. Some have said that well, the freedom to travel is all very well, but if you can't afford it, that's not really, you can't really do it. Or, and what's the point of having freedom of expression if no one really listens to you? So I suppose a lot of them felt like they didn't know what the perfect system was, but maybe that there were bits from the GDR that could have been brought into a reunited Germany. For example, uh, with the gender policy in the GDR, 97% of women um, worked and so they were far more integrated into the workforce than in the West. But that's not something that was included in the the new constitution or that was not something that was fostered in reunited Germany. So that was potentially one um, advantage, um, female emancipation in the GDR. Though, of course, some historians would say that emancipation is a choice and most of these women, um, it, was, it was very much expected that women would work and make a contribution to um, communist East Germany. So it wasn't so much a choice than a necessity. Obviously, during the, the East German period, there were some very difficult relationships people had with, for example, state bureaucrats or um, people spying on each other. Did that make things then difficult or awkward after reunification when people had suddenly a new relationship with people who may perhaps have persecuted them? Yes, and that would ma was made ever more difficult after December 1991 when all the Stasi files were made open and available for 
anyone to request. So um, East Germans or even Westerners who'd been to East Germany can write to the German government or to the Stasi uh, institution in East Germany where you can you can write off and get your Stasi file. And obviously people discovered things in those files about sort of friends or people they thought were friends or even relatives um, you know, supplying information about them to the regime. And this did lead to a breakdown of some friendships and relationships. But I guess for historians, it's very exciting to think that this is a, a goldmine of sources about which will offer amazing insights into life in the GDR or certain elements of it through the very detailed information that Stasi officers wrote down, for example, when they followed people, they wrote down things like when parents took their children to school, when they ate their um, main meal of the day, uh, what brand of toothpaste um, an individual bought. And this was all information which could then be used um, in an interrogation scenario because if uh, the interrogator knew all of this information, the thinking was that it would render the, the person under questioning sort of powerless, that they'd think, what's the point in withholding any information because they know it all already? And so, obviously, the opening of the files was pretty momentous and did lead to yeah, the breakdown of um, sort of friendships that had otherwise been strong and lasted for decades. Overall, how do these these eight people that you spoke to, how do they now feel about the GDR? Well, some of them feel slightly nostalgic for certain aspects of their old lives, but um, there's this term, um, nostalgia, nostalgia for the former East, which is often characterised by things like the Trabant car, one of the few cars produced in the GDR, or the East German um, traffic-like men, which are distinctive with their little hats. But this somewhat trivialises nostalgia, which isn't really nostalgia for the old political system, not for the politicians in the GDR, but rather for a way of life that many sorely missed. One thing that um, is often cited in relation to Oselgi is the Spreewald gherkins. These are kind of pickles that um, initially disappeared from East German supermarket shelves and were, had to be brought back by popular demand. But many items like the Spreewald gherkins initially disappeared. And if you imagine what it would be like for all your favourite brands of food or clothing to suddenly be unavailable, even if it meant overall there was more choice available, I guess one example from everyday life, how hugely disorientating the upheaval had been for East Germans. You've spent some time with, with these people. Can you tell from meeting them and talking to them the difference between a former East German and a former West German? No. I suppose when I did my very first interview, I was I was expecting that I might be able to tell the difference, even as an outsider. But the lady I met was incredibly sort of well-dressed and wore clothes that were, I guess, Western in style. But, you know, this was probably a a very sort of superficial thing to have expected to see as a difference. When you think it's been almost 25 years now since the fall of the wall, it would probably be more surprising if there was a difference. And also, it's worth noting that um, the case of East Germany is quite different from other countries in Eastern Europe because the other countries who took up democracy had to start everything from scratch, their new parliaments, their new systems, whereas with East Germany being folded into West Germany, there was a working system there already, a rich country that uh, was able to 
absorb East Germany. So East Germany was the sort of jewel in the crown of the Soviet satellite states. And that really affected what happened in for East Germans in comparison to other Eastern Europeans um, with their transition. That was Hester Vesey. Born in the GDR, living in the shadow of the wall, is out now in the UK, published by Oxford University Press. In the US, it is due to be released early in 2015 by the same publisher. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The UK government is to repay part of the nation's First World War debt a hundred years since the outbreak of the conflict. The Treasury said it would pay off £218 million from a 4% consolidated loan next February as part of a redemption of bonds. The 4% consoles were issued in 1927 by Winston Churchill, then Chancellor, to refinance national war bonds originating from the First World War. According to The Guardian, the government's debt management office estimates that the nation has paid £1.26 billion in interest on these bonds since 1927. This is the first time in more than 60 years that a Chancellor has redeemed an undated guilt of this sort. In other news, the earliest written report of the gunpowder plot, dated the 9th of November 1605, is to be sold at auction. The six-page letter written by Robert Cecil, 1st Earl of Salisbury, spymaster and advisor to James VI and I, describes the bravery of Guy Fawkes under torture and the foiling of his, quote, cruel and detestable crime, the Telegraph reports. It was sent to Ralph Winwood, England's ambassador to The Hague, four days after Guy Fawkes was arrested beneath the Houses of Parliament. The letter is expected to fetch between forty and £60,000 at auction on the 9th of December. Meanwhile, the family of a First World War captain who boosted morale through his cartoons of life in the trenches 
is calling for the government to publicly acknowledge his effort. Captain Bruce Bairn's father, who served on the front line with the 1st Battalion, the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, became a household name during the war, thanks to his comic sketches depicting life in the trenches. These include his best-known cartoon, captioned, Well, if he knows of a better all, go to it. Now, The Independent reports that an online petition, welcomed by Ben's father's family, proposes that a leading member of the government should make a statement in the House of Commons, recognising the captain's contribution, before next October's 100th anniversary of the Better All cartoons publication. The campaign has been launched by the military historians Major Tony and Valmay Holt. Thanks, Emma. The return of Charles Stuart, the eldest surviving son of the executed Charles I, to England in 1660, saw an end to a brief period of Republican rule. Freelance journalist Dan Cosins met Professor Ronald Hutton, a historian at Bristol University, at the Banqueting Hall in London, to find out how the restoration of the monarchy came about and how people felt about having a king installed on the throne once more. I'm here at the Banqueting House in London with Ronald Hutton, Professor of Early Modern History at Bristol University. We're here to talk about the Restoration, when in 1660 monarchy was restored in England, Scotland and Ireland under the returning Charles II after a decade of Republican government. So Ronald, can you tell me why we've come to Banqueting House? What was this place used for during the period and what's its relevance, most importantly, in the story of the Restoration? Banqueting House is the last remaining bit of the old royal palace of Whitehall, which was the main residence of English monarchs all the way from Henry VIII up to William of Orange. And it was the main house which was the ceremonial centre of the palace, so all the state audiences, the big functions used to happen here. It's the stage, the public arena of royalty. Okay, so... If we can take the story back to the uh, end of the English Civil War, um, the Royalists lost, of course, but can, since we're standing outside uh, Banqueting House, can you tell us what became of Charles I? Can you describe the scenes here? Well, where we're standing right now, which is just outside the present main entrance, the Banqueting House, is what would have been right underneath the scaffold on which Charles I was beheaded on the 30th of January 1649, the only British monarch ever to suffer this fate. He was a conviction politician, which meant he didn't know when he was beaten. And so after the Civil War occurred, he surrendered and kept on trying to divide his enemies. He'd never agreed to any of their peace terms, whereas a more sensible, a more worldly person would have signed on the dotted line. And eventually they just got tired of him and decided to kill him. And he died here. Right. And presumably it was a, it was a grey and damp day like it was today? No, it's nothing like today. It was freezing cold with occasional drifts of sleet. So absolutely bitter. That's why Charles wore two shirts underneath his uh, top clothes in order to avoid shivering with cold and so giving the impression of being afraid. Right. And can you describe the scenes here? Presumably there was a huge crowd awaiting. Big scaffolding. Uh, the little king, he was about five foot tall on the scaffold. Beside him, uh, the Bishop of London, who's actually no longer a bishop, but is here as a kind of private chaplain to the king, and soldiers all round the scaffold to prevent an escape attempt being made and keep back the crowd if it got hostile. 
and a vast crowd out in the street of Whitehall itself looking on when the king's head fell and it fell at one blow so it was a pretty efficient executioner there was this enormous groan rang down the street. Some people rushed forward to dip their handkerchiefs in the royal blood as souvenirs, as they knew rightly that they'd be very expensive objects in a few years. Okay, so we've come back inside the banqueting house to the main hall, uh, and we're sat underneath a rather splendid roof. Uh, Ronald, can you try and describe to me what the room looks like, please? It's uh, an enormous hall with uh, white uh, plastered pillars uh, at both ends of it and down the sides and tall plain windows uh, between each with an upper gallery running round with another set of windows. But what really attracts everybody is the painted ceiling uh, produced by Rubens, the, the great uh, Flemish artist in the late 1620s showing Charles I's father, James I, being taken up to heaven and uh, surrounded by Greek and Roman deities symbolising the triumph of order over chaos and peace over war. I see. So, so to, to what extent was this, um, this fresco up here designed to glorify the monarchy? And, and if so, I mean, I guess it's kind of ironic that Charles, Charles I had to walk under it and out to his death. The point of the paintings is to illustrate the classic doctrine of the divine right of kings, that they have a special relationship with God. And so to have to walk diagonally across the hall, right underneath uh, this portrait of the invincibility and triumph of monarchy, must have been pretty bitter to Charles I. But I guess if you've lost three kingdoms and are about to have your head cut off, uh, the presence of paintings doesn't make an enormous amount of difference. Absolutely. Okay, so as a little aside then, uh, under, under Cromwell, I mean, do, do, do you have any idea of what this place was used for under Cromwell? Oliver Cromwell used the banqueting house for the same reasons as the monarchs before had used it and those after were going to use it, for big state occasions. The biggest of all was when he formally refused the offer of the crown of uh, the now united Republic of uh, the British Isles uh, to become the first king of it and the first King Cromwell. As he refused it, our nation was turned into a different course. I see, okay. So now, I mean, if we can fast forward a few years, when and why did the, the Commonwealth begin to unravel? The Commonwealth was always sitting on a time bomb, and the time bomb was financial and it was ideological. Financial, that in order to hold down the conquered British Isles and the conquered Royalists in England, the government needed a huge army. It tried going for the feel-good factor by reducing the army and therefore reducing taxes, but in the end it reduced the army below the point at which the taxes could support it, and so uh, the uh, result was was a slow slide into arrears with uh, too many soldiers now chasing too small a government treasury and getting rather upset. The ideological problem is not just an unhappy army, it's that the Civil War had shattered the Church of England into a number of different competing Protestant creeds and the hope of Cromwell's government had been that by allowing them all to exist alongside each other they'd settle their differences, make up and rebuild a church between them. Instead, what toleration had done was encourage the appearance of people who didn't want a church at all, like the Quakers and the Baptists who wanted to worship in their own private gathered churches and the tension between those who 
wanted a Church of England and the new radical minority who wanted it to go altogether was growing. So we seem to be heading for a new civil war. I see. And, and, and how about the death of, of Oliver Cromwell? I mean, what sort of a situation did that leave her? To, to what extent was, was the whole thing doomed to failure once he died? Cromwell probably died feeling a failure. He had run out of political options. He couldn't work with the parliament any longer. Nobody around him had any really convincing plan of how to get the government moving. There were no new people around drafting worthwhile constitutions. He was a broken man politically mentally and physically. No, no wonder he died. Mm. So did, did his son, Richard, who I believe took over, have, have any chance of establishing a credible regime? And, and if not, why not? Richard had a pretty good chance of establishing a credible regime because initially he was wildly popular. He had not actually been involved in the events of uh, the English Revolution. He hadn't held high command in the army until the last minute before he succeeded. And so he wasn't identified with most of the things that made his father's government unpopular. This was also his undoing because he could see a way out of the problem, the only feasible one, and that was to throw the board the radical reforms that the English army had wanted for a dozen years. Uh, reformed parliaments, toleration of unorthodox religious beliefs, a far broader and more porous Church of England, and a reform of uh, the law to make it faster and more just. Now, Cromwell couldn't get a single parliament to agree to reforms that radical. Richard's brainwave was simply to chuck the whole reform package overboard and go back to a much more conservative country in exchange for acceptance of the government by an elected parliament and a large vote of money that would keep the army happy. Okay, so you can, can you tell me what happened then? Why did Richard fail in the end? Richard almost succeeded. He managed to get an elected parliament that recognised his government and the new constitution, and that's more than his father had ever been able to do. But the army became more and more upset. Richard was ready for this. He had had a, a, a list drawn up of the opinions of the regimental commanders in the army. It still exists. One third were on his side. One third were very much opposed to giving up the old reform programme. And one third seemed to be undecided. And so he reckoned if he prepared a coup in which he rallied the loyal soldiers to him, he had managed to overpower the hostile third while the middle third hesitated and purge the army of everybody who was an opponent of his. And that would have given him absolute control of three kingdoms. What happened instead was that he'd misjudged the beliefs of the men by the beliefs of their commanding officers. And on the fatal night when he called his supporters to arms. Regiment after regiment he thought would support him, disowned their commanders and marched off to join the radicals. Richard was overthrown, his parliament was thrown out, and the protectorate, Cromwell's government, was abolished. In its place, the army, after an awful lot of argument, called back the parliament in the previous ten years that had seemed most receptive to its reform programme. That is, the purge parliament, the rump parliament, for being rude, which had executed the king, abolished the monarchy in the House of Lords, allowed religious toleration, and they brought it back to reintroduce their reform programme properly. 
What had happened before was it had taken four years for the purge parliament and the army to fall out. This time it took four months and history repeated itself and the army chucked out the parliament all over again. I see. So, I mean, this sounds like a very chaotic situation. What Was it as chaotic as it sounds? And, and what were the people of England uh, and the other kingdoms thinking at this point as much as it's possible to generalise? It's certainly possible to generalise and it certainly felt chaotic to them. They're getting fed up with it. They were now under pretty well open military rule without the soldiers having any clear ideas of where to go next. And so what built up in that winter of 1659 to 60 was agitation through the whole of England and Wales for a free parliament, a parliament which was called under the old system of elections and in which the MPs were given a completely free chance to do what they liked with the church and the government. So in the meantime, while all this was happening, where was his son, Charles II? What happened to him at the end of the war and what had he been up to in the intervening period? Charles II had been in exile in Europe for pretty well the whole time since 1649 his father was beheaded. He got to Scotland for a bit and led a Scottish army into England, but it was totally destroyed at the Battle of Worcester, leaving Charles to hide in an oak tree and various other places and managed to get away in the end to France. He then lived in France, Germany, Belgium and Spain for the whole time since then, constantly scheming to get back and not actually doing it. So, moving back to England then, uh, to, to what extent was there a clamour for the return of the monarchy and of Charles II at this point, and, and if so, from who? There was definitely a clamour for a proper, freely elected parliament that wasn't told what to do by an army. And whatever that parliament decided, the majority of people in England and Wales were happy to accept. Probably a lot of them hoped that the old-style church, House of Lords and monarchy would come back, but it was the parliament's role to decide. I see. And, I mean, as I understand it, it took General George Monk, commander of the army in Scotland, to, to put an end to all this uncertainty. So can you tell me a bit about Monk? Uh, who was he and why was he so influential and, and where did his loyalties lie in the summer of uh, 1659? George Monk was pretty near a professional soldier. He's from a minor gentry family in Devon, so he's got to make cash. The only way to make cash is by going into an army for a small gent in those days. And he does pretty well. He changes sides in the English Civil War, and he ends up one of Oliver Cromwell's best infantry commanders. He's in charge of Scotland for most of the 1650s, and he's there when Richard Cromwell is turned out and the English army seizes power. What he does then is change sides once more. He informs the English army and the purge parliament that he's all on their side. What breaks him is the English army throwing out the purge parliament in the autumn of 1659 because he becomes convinced, rightly or wrongly, that the army is now going to abolish the Church of England and he is absolutely devoted to it. So he mobilises his army in Scotland against the English one. The army in Scotland is extremely well paid and at this moment the financial time bomb goes off in England. The supply of money to the English army fails and the army starts to fall to pieces. 
it calls back the purge parliament for one last time, which then itself purges the army of all its radicals, thereby getting rid of their old oppressors, but also breaking the power of the army as a revolutionary force. George Monk is invited by the Parliament down into England to guard it, and on arriving in London sees a desperately discontented, overtaxed, restless country, and so decides to agree to what the people want and call a free Parliament. Monk was in touch with the exiled king before the Parliament met, just in case it decides to vote back the monarchy. But if the Parliament hadn't wanted the monarchy to come back, then George would certainly not raise a finger to help Charles II. I see. So, so it wasn't, he wasn't the, the one man making the decisions as such. He was being guided by what he felt the people in the Parliament wanted. What George Monk did, basically, was tell the English and Welsh to make up their own minds, and he abided by their decision. So then, at what point did both houses decide or proclaim that Charles II was going to be the king? At the beginning of May 1660, the uh, newly met convention parliament decided to settle the government. It received a letter from the exiled king in which he basically said it was up to them to settle the country as they wished, and this was music to their ears. And so on the 8th of May, they formally proclaimed that the government of England was by the old-fashioned House of Lords, the old-fashioned House of Commons, and the king, and they invited back Charles Okay, so Charles makes his way back from exile in Europe. Uh, Can you describe the the day that Charles II made his return to reclaim the throne? He makes his entry into London uh, at the end of May, which becomes ever after Restoration Day, Oak Apple Day in old-fashioned parlance because the king hiding in an oak tree when he escaped. (laughs) And he comes here to the banqueting hall of the old Palace of Whitehall in the evening. And with thousands and thousands of people cheering in the streets outside and singing and boozing and lighting bonfires, he formally uh, received the leaders of the political nation and declared that he was back. So why then was he so fated by the public? Why were they so delighted to see him? The public was tired of years of political insecurity, crushing over taxation and military rule, and they imagined that whatever the king stood for, he was bound to be better than that. So he he appeared then to represent some sort of stability. He represents the thing that most of the English seemed throughout history have wanted most, a better yesterday. (laughs) Okay. So what then sort of a situation did did Charles II face when when he came back? Presumably he didn't just, it wasn't just easy, you know, there was things to sort out. So, I mean, was it simply a case of constitutionally turning the clock back to the eve of the Civil War? There's no way the king could turn back the constitution to the eve of the Civil War. For a start, the Civil Wars had made Parliament a permanent and essential institution of government. And that's why, whereas his father had ruled for 11 years without calling a Parliament, Charles II met a Parliament at some point every year, practically, between 1660 and 1681. So, Ronald, can you tell me about the the role of the Cavalier Parliament here in in the settlement? Well, there are two restoration settlements performed by different parliaments. There's one in 1660 by the Convention Parliament, which is pretty moderate and conciliatory and sensible. It confirms that all the legal actions that have taken place in the last 20 years are bindings. There isn't complete legal anarchy. It pardons everybody except a small number of people for their actions in the Civil War and Revolution. 
It has a compromised church set up which combines what the old-fashioned supporters of bishops want and what the Puritans want. And it gives the king a grant of money to pay off the army, monk's army. So all this is pretty healing. Then the next year, 1661, a very different parliament arrives that's far more embittered and vengeful and old royalist and proceeds to chuck the Puritans out of the church and out of the town councils, viciously persecute most of the groups who want to worship outside the Church of England and prevents the king from having a standing army. So what the Cavalier Parliament is doing is ensuring that the gentry of England and the nobility actually run the country and have a power that stops anybody, the towns, the crown, the mobs from overturning law and order in the future. And that, unfortunately for the king, weakens his power again quite considerably. What about the question of revenge then? I mean, how did Charles II deal with the people who had killed his father and ruled in his absence? Charles II is quite keen that at least some of the people who signed his father's death warrants should suffer. But in practice, that happens. Everybody who signed the death warrant and tried to get away instead of giving themselves up is executed. And uh, one top politician, a Republican politician, is beheaded. Uh, and that's it. Charles has no personal animosity against most of the people in England because he hardly knows them. And he's actually out to pardon as many as possible to get as broad a basis of support. And so even those who've signed his father's death warrant and have given themselves up are allowed to die in prison. Charles didn't order the oh, okay. corpses of Cromwell and uh, the judge of his father and Cromwell's son-in-law to be dug out of Westminster Abbey and hanged on the common scaffold at Marble Arch. It was actually his parliament, the convention parliament, that did this because the king had blocked off attempts to victimise more people. So Charles was pretty laid back. I see. Okay. Um, and finally then, I guess, I mean, what, what did Banqueting House become under Charles II? Who this may be a misconception, but certainly had a reputation as a, as a merry monarch. What, what did Charles II use this place for? Charles was a merry monarch. He was a, a natural party animal. And he used the banqueting hall not for parties. It's uh, too big, too formal for that. He used it for big state occasions, like receiving ambassadors and making great proclamations. And so it, it goes back to its traditional role. It doesn't do anything really pivotal under Charles II, the way that it had done under Cromwell and Charles I. Uh, the last great occasion uh, which this hall saw was actually the acceptance of the crown by William, of William and Mary, the joint monarchs, William of Orange and Mary II, that's Charles's niece, uh, at the revolution of 1688. But under Charles, it had a happy kind of snooze. Uh, it woke up every couple of years for a big reception. And it was a, a happy, secure and rather chilled out sort of place. That was Dan Cousins in the company of Professor Ronald Hutton, author of The Restoration, A Political and Religious History of England and Wales, 1658-1667. You can read an article by Dan and Ronald in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's magazine we uncover the lost voices of Celtic Britain, we explore the changing nature of First World War remembrance, and we find out why the 1864 presidential election may have been Abraham Lincoln's greatest test. 
You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents and digitally. And now is a great time to take out a subscription. If you're in the UK, you'll get to choose a free fantastic history book when you subscribe, including new accounts of The Wars of the Roses, Thomas Cromwell and Waterloo. To take advantage of this deal, please visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe and it will be available for a limited time only. And that is almost all for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be joined by Dominic Sambrook and Lucy Worsley to talk about the history of sci-fi and dancing, respectively. I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>